The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to Apologetics, show number seven on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Phil Stone, and I'm very pleased to welcome His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Welcome back to you, my Lord. As usual, we're using the text, The Defense of the Catholic Church by Francis X. Doyle, SJ, and it's time to finalise this three-part mini-series on our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So far in this mini-series, we've covered lessons 9 through to 19, discussing how Christ called himself a prophet, and claimed to be the Messiah, and how Christ affirmed that he is true God in the presence of the apostles, the Jews, and that this was a public fact known to all classes of people. In this show, we start with lesson 20 on page 87 of the text, and we will be exploring whether Christ deceived men in regard to his claims, or was he indeed deceived with regard to his mission? We'll end this show and this mini-series with a synopsis on the fundamental doctrines of our Lord and Saviour. So on to lesson 20, entitled, Did Christ Deceive Men in Regard to His Claims? I must admit, my Lord, that I did a bit of a double take when reading this chapter because it just didn't occur to me that men might suggest that Christ was wicked to the extent that he would deceive or he was uh, silly enough to um, to the extent that he might have been deceived. Uh, I suppose it just never occurred to me, but after all, this is apologetics, the defense of the church, so we'll be getting into answering objections about some of these arguments um, and and some of these arguments from here on in this uh, in the science of apologetics. So question 87, this lesson is an exploration of the character of our Lord in order to demonstrate that uh, he could not have deceived men. Uh, so please uh, take it away from here, my Lord. You well, know, actually, the Pharisees can accuse them of being a deceiver. So already 2,000 years ago, this was said. And and the rationalists, everybody that has tried to tear down the Catholic Church over the past 250 years or more, uh, have uh, said everything uh, about Christ, the most vile and disgusting things they have said, and, and, and absurd accusations like, you know, he was a deceiver or he was mixed up or, or you know, so... Uh, yes, you know, these things have been said and we, we don't take them very seriously, but nonetheless, we have to answer everything. So the, um, so the, the first thing is uh, that Christ, the first point that has to be made in this regard is that Christ was a just man. So uh, he was uh, called the lamb without spot, he died for both the just and sinners. Uh, the uh, anyone who uh, who works and do does supernatural good works is born of him. Uh, there was no sin in him, uh, and he is called the high priest, the holy, 
the innocent, unstained, and sinless, and the Pharisees were uh, obliged to uh, pay witnesses to perjure themselves uh, when they were trying to accuse him because there was nothing to say about him. Uh, And uh, Judas the traitor said to the high priest, I have uh, betrayed an innocent man. And, uh, and neither Pilate nor Herod found any guilt in him. So the, the, those are very, very important uh, testimonies. Also, you know, where would be the basis, what would be the basis of any accusation against him? Where in, in all that we know about Christ, is there anything that is morally improper? Uh, he was a just man. I mean, there's nothing in the Gospels that... that that points to any kind of moral impropriety. So where would you get it? Uh, where, what's the basis of your accusation? Uh, he, first of all, was the holiest of men because he perfectly fulfilled his duties to God. Uh, he always sought to do his father's will. He spent whole nights in prayer, praying to his father, uh, he wanted to do not his own will, but the will of his father. He says that many times. Uh, he said that the will of his father is his food. When he turned down the food at the, uh, the, the well with the Samaritan woman, uh, the, the apostles had gone into town shopping and got some food and they brought it back. And, and it says at the beginning that he was tired and we're going to uh, assume that he was also hungry and he sends them in to get food. So we assume that he is hungry at that point. But then he talks to this Samaritan woman and converts her. And he was so zealous for her conversion that he lost his appetite, essentially, which does happen to us when we're very much involved in something. Uh, we're very busy with something. When, when our attention is very fixed on something, we tend to eat less. We tend to eat more when we're bored and uh, when uh, we're not very busy, but we tend to eat less when we are very, very involved in something. And uh, so uh, this excited our blessed Lord so much that he said, no, I'm I'm really not interested in eating right now. Um, So he uh, sought always to uh, do his father's will. That's what he said. Uh, He sought no glory from any human beings but sought only to glorify his father in heaven. He actually uh, fled from people who wanted to make him king. Uh, he, um, he always did what was pleasing to God. He obeyed all of the moral law. Um, he uh, went apart frequently from his disciples and the people in order to pray to God. Uh, He said that he wished to be glorified only that his father might be glorified. Uh, He uh, accomplished the work entrusted to him, uh, um, making the name of his father known to men. So he had a mission from his father to save the human race and to uh, preach concerning the father. Uh, And he was humble uh, even to uh, being crucified willingly, uh, and um, uh, so 
uh, and he commended his spirit to the hands of his father when he was dying. So, uh, uh, I mean, that is a just man. That is a holy man. That is someone who is very, very concerned about glorifying God. That is holiness, doing the will of God. Uh, so we're talking about Christ in his human nature because obviously Christ is also God. And he perfectly fulfilled his duties to man. Uh, he was subject to his parents, even though he was superior to both of them. And uh, it says that he advanced in wisdom and age and grace before God and men. That is, he uh, grew up like a normal child. Uh, of course, he was not the same as the, the children down the block because he was God, but he advanced learning things. He purposely wanted to be like human beings and, and uh, learn things, discover things. He wanted to be taught his prayers by his mother. He desired all of those things in order to be to take on our condition. And uh, he uh, permitted publicans and sinners to approach him. We know this, we just had the Feast of St. Matthew where he goes and, and calls St. Matthew and then sits down to a big banquet of these publicans. Well, you couldn't get uh, a, a, a more despised group of people than a bunch of publicans. These were Jews who decided to side with the Romans, get jobs from the Romans, and collect taxes for the Romans. And the, the way that taxes were uh, done at that time and really up to recent times is, is by getting as much out of the people as you possibly can and then giving to Rome what was their share, what they wanted, and then you keep the rest. You see, so if you, if the Romans said, we want $50, well, if you collect 100, you keep 50, you give 50 to the Romans, everybody's happy. But because people knew that they would do that and they would extract as much as they could from you, they were absolutely despised. And also the fact that they were Jews and they were doing this work for the Romans made them all the more despicable. And so our Lord sits down for a <laughs> meal with these people. And, you know, everybody, how could you do this? You know, these people are. And he said, I am not here to call the, the just, but sinners. That's why I'm here. It's not, in other words, I'm not having fun with them or I'm not sitting here because, uh, you know, this is fun for me. That's the implication. I am here to convert them. Uh, was the... There were some strategies to catch him out when he, was, uh, when he sat down with the publicans and sinners by the, by the Pharisees, uh, just, you know, accusing him of, of sitting down with them. Is, am I right there? Yes, they were accusing him of, you know, something like when the Pharisee said at the time when Mary Magdalene broke into her house and came into, excuse me, his house and washed the feet of our Lord. He thought if this man were truly the Messiah, he would know what kind of a woman this is. And of course, our Lord read his mind being God. And and then he, you know, we know the, the rest of it. So the... Uh, so our Lord was always very kind to sinners, repentant sinners, uh, not hardened sinners. Uh, the Pharisees were hardened sinners, and he was not terribly kind to them. Uh, he, he told them plainly quite a few times uh, about their sins. 
Um, but the people who were uh, repentant sinners and disposed to repentance, he was very kind to. Um, uh, he watched carefully over his disciples and urged them to love a, a lowly life. So they had to follow him around. They had no livelihood. They were supported actually by the holy women. Uh, and uh, Mary Magdalene being one of them, but the other holy women uh, helped support the, 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 our Lord and the disciples during, their, during that three years. Uh, and um, even when Judas betrayed him with a kiss of friendship, he spoke very softly to him, very kindly to him. Uh, he was still trying to save him. Uh, he begged forgiveness for those who crucified him. Uh, he, when he was uh, arrested, he, he protected his disciples so that they would not be arrested. Uh, and uh, he was uh, gentle with those who struck him. Uh, and uh, he commanded his mother to the care of St. John at the foot of the, who was at the foot of the cross. And uh, he uh, also forgave the good thief on the cross. Um, and um, generally did good to all men. I mean, he cannot be reproached for uh, any sort of mistreatment of anybody. He was uh, merciful to the woman caught in adultery, uh, uh, merciful to the sick, uh, the possessed, uh, the insane, uh, all of the, uh, the, the, the people in, you know, who were burdened by problems. Even told St. Peter to put away his sword in the Garden of Eden, uh, Garden of uh, Gethsemane. Beg your pardon. Yes, and then he he's, he uh, healed the servant who lost his ear, and um, yeah, so uh, the um, so it, yes, and you know he forgave the apostles for running away. I mean, his his whole disposition was one of of both justice and charity. He said, "You have to pay to Caesar the what is belongs to Caesar." which was a, a great answer to those uh, Pharisees uh, because Caesar's image was right on it. <laughs> Trying to catch him out. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And, uh, and they just found, by the way, a coin in excavating the, in Jerusalem, a coin of Nero's time, a gold coin. Uh, and sure enough, there was Nero's face on it. But uh, Nero came after our Lord. So that was probably at the time of the Roman occupation in the 60s AD, uh, because the Jews were getting more and more revolutionary against the Romans. So they, I think it was the early 60s, they went and occupied uh, uh, the Holy Land. Uh, so, uh, but there, so there are many cases of, of his being both just and charitable to everyone around him, including sinners, uh, even the woman, uh, the Canaanite woman, to whom he was a little harsh at the beginning, uh, he was very kind to, uh, and he was harsh to her only to draw her out, to draw out her faith, uh, where he, he's, he wouldn't answer her at first when she called out to him, and then he said, uh, my mission is, is only to the children of Israel, and my mission is not to you, and, and, uh, and, uh, and then the third time, uh, he, she, cried out to him and he turned and said, you know, the, uh, the food that is meant for the children should not be given to the dogs. 
obviously referring to her because she was a Canaanite and not a Jew, as a dog. My goodness, you know. I mean, just imagine that, that especially from our Lord, who was so kind to everybody. And she said right back to him, well, even the, the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And she was as bold as brass back to him. And, he, and that's exactly what he wanted from her. And he said, oh, woman, great is thy faith. So he drew out her faith by that, that refusal to deal with her which is a lesson for us too, that, that sometimes you know we need to pray a long time and repeatedly for something we really want. It was a lesson for everybody in that. And uh, so he really was very kind to her, but uh, showed her harshness and coldness in order to draw out her faith. Uh, and uh, so- Tough um, love. Tough love, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead and- uh, um, so, you know, his, the whole gospel is one of his doing good to others in all respects, uh, not only spiritual, but also uh, physical, I mean, the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, all sorts of things, um, his, his sensitivity to people's problems and needs, lepers, everybody. Uh, the, I mean, the gospel is just full of that. Mm. So... Uh, and uh, then he chose for himself what was lowly and difficult. Uh, so he did not have a place upon which to rest his head. There, there's, uh, there's only one case in the whole gospel, I think it's in St. John, where it says he went, he was in a house that, that the apostles went to see him in his house. And that, that had to be in Judea because it was shortly after the baptism of Christ and the uh, and the pointing out of Christ as the Messiah, so that had to be in Judea. He was in someone's house, but he had a little house, and but that's the only time there's mention of that. Uh, otherwise, they're camping out. It seems. Mm. I mean, there's no mention of any shelter that they go to, uh, and uh, uh, so you know he led a life that was totally detached from. Uh, from uh, material things, totally, utterly detached from material things. Uh, he washed the feet of his own disciples. Uh, he lived with the poor and with sinners. He fasted in the desert. Uh, at, at the risk of his own life, he raised Lazarus from the dead because they wanted to kill him already. There was a plot already. And that's why the, he was out in Jericho, which is way to the east over by the Jordan, and uh, from Jerusalem, you know, probably a, a more than a day's journey uh, from Jerusalem walking. And, and his disciples said to him, don't go back to Jerusalem, you're going to be killed. And, but he did it anyway to raise Lazarus from the dead, which was his uh, last and greatest miracle, uh, uh, apart from his own resurrection and obviously a, a prefiguration of his own resurrection. It proved that he had uh, power over life and death. And it was the most marvelous of his miracles. The, the, uh, now he raised the widow, the, the, the son of the widow of name, but this one was much more spectacular, we might say, because it was only a short distance from Jerusalem and a lot of the people of Jerusalem knew 
Mary Magdalene and, and her sister Martha knew Lazarus. Uh, they had relatives and friends in the area. And so there was a crowd of people there mourning and uh, they all saw it. Uh, and the, the, the drama of it was much greater than say any others that he did uh, to, to call forth a body that was rot, rotting in the tomb for four days and in a sealed tomb. Uh, and uh, so they, uh, and he just called him forth, you know, in a very dramatic way. They, he didn't do that in, in any of the other raisings from the dead. Uh, he called him out of the tomb. And uh, it was very much a, a prefiguration of the last judgment uh, of bodies coming out of their, their tombs and rising from the dead. And, and in, in a few days after that, he himself would be uh, put to death and would rise from the dead. Mm. So it was a week or two after that. It was a pretty extraordinary miracle for the fact that he was uh, just so long in the tomb. Um, you know, the other ones of rising from the dead, they'd just died or, or um, you know, the case of I think it was the centurion, um, he didn't even need to go there. But this was extraordinary in the fact that, you know, everyone had probably given up, I would su suspect, at that point that... Um, there was no no turning back. You know, it was too late. Uh, yes, and uh, uh, Martha reminds him that in a nice way, reproaches our Lord in a nice way. If you had been here, he would not have died. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was a, a, a reproach, but he purposely um, did not come in order to manifest his glory and the glory of his father by raising him from the dead. If he had merely prevented his death, that would not have had any value with regard to his mission. But he wanted to do this last and dramatic uh, miracle in front of the Jews of Judea and the Jews of Jerusalem uh, and, the, and the chief priests and high priests and so forth. He wanted to do this uh, purposely, so that's why he let him die. So to God, it doesn't matter whether he dies or not. I mean, obviously. Mm. But Martha... Uh, gave him a little reproach for that. <laughs> and mm. It's a, a very, very uh, human point in the gospel. St. John is great for, for describing all of the details and how our Lord himself was moved by emotion at the, at the whole scene of it and, uh, and wept. And, and uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it'd be, you, you, it's so vivid in the gospel that, that you make a, a sort of film out of it in your own imagination hmm. uh, with all of the detail that is involved in it and, and the uh, very, very authoritative uh, Lazarus come forth, you know, just yeah. calling out that, <laughs> that, that command, uh, showing yeah. his, uh, I mean, he didn't touch him, he just that command of the creator to come out and and life goes back into him and and he's restored to Mary and Martha and Mary and Martha mm -hmm. understand what he did and he did it because he he gave the doctrine i am see Martha i think it was Martha who said yes you know i believe in the resurrection everyone on the last day will rise from the dead and then he said i am the resurrection and the life you see mm -hmm. explaining to her because even his own disciples and apostles were yet dull concerning his own doctrine and uh, so he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And, and I'm going to show you that I am, essentially. Uh, and, and he does that. So it must, I mean, 
And just imagine the jaws dropping as this dead man <laughs> comes out. I mean, just, just think of it. <laughs> oh, no, it's amazing. And it says many believed in him, obviously. I mean, yes. You see that. <laughs> If, if you don't believe in him after that, then there's, uh, there's something seriously wrong. You gotta <laughs> right, right. Especially that he didn't even go near him. He called him out. Yes, you know that 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 would just put chills up your back. You know to see that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Everybody, I, I just there's stairs fixed upon the the tomb. Let's see what happens. <laughs> right, a few people uh, fainting and. Uh, because yeah, that would be, you know, <laughs> yeah, I could just imagine the, the scene. Um, and that's when the, the chief priests and Pharisees finally hatched the plot to kill him. Yes. Because they figured if this keeps up, we're dead. Yeah. See, that we're finished if this keeps up. Just to round out this this uh, lesson, my lord, um, there is a conclusion in the in the lesson, but the footnote one uh, is by P. Finlay. Uh, he's a Jesuit from his work, The Church of Christ. And uh, it's a nice encapsulating um, summary, if you like. Quote, there is no indication in the New Testament of any mental weakness or restless enthusiasm in Christ. There is no trace of insincerity or self-seeking. On the contrary, there is abounding proof of lofty intelligence and calm strength of will, whose convincing testimony to his humility, unselfishness and truth. Besides, the concordant voice of civilised mankind proclaims Christ to be the most perfect type and pattern of our race, a man the wisest, the most virtuous, most straightforward that the world has ever seen, the most unlikely to be the victim or the author of the most stupendous and most wicked deception in all his human history. And so we drew the necessary inference that his claim was warranted, that he was more than a man, he was very God himself." I love that. I thought it was fantastic. Yes, Great yes, summary. that's a yes, good summary. And and he, um, no, it, it's just an absurdity to say that Christ was a deceiver or that he was a fool. You know, some sort of uh, insane person that didn't know what he was saying. I mean, it, it's just absurd. I mean, it's hardly worth even answering it. And uh, no one ever, no one serious ever, ever accused him of that. That's right, and that takes us to our next next lesson, lesson 21 in the text on page 91, which is uh, entitled, Was Christ Himself Deceived with Regard to His Mission? And again, we consider our Lord's character. So I'll hand it over to you, my Lord. Uh, yeah, so this is, uh, so we've already established that he's not a deceiver, So, but what he was he deceived? Was he someone that... Uh, uh, you know, was convinced he had some mission that he didn't have. You know, was he some sort of a fanatic or a, uh, you know, just a fool essentially? And uh, and the answer is no. Uh, and there are various reasons to say no. Uh, first of all, his doctrine was so sublime that no fool or deceived person could ever have come up with the things that he said. Uh, hmm. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, the uh, the all of the moral teachings, uh, the high, very high moral teachings, which, by the way, were unheard of in the ancient world. Hmm. These were things that no one ever heard before. That you should love your enemies, do good to those who do evil to you, turn the cheek. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it, it, again, the jaws drop. I mean, no one ever heard this. 
the the ancient world was get ahead and push aside those who are in front of you and you know enslave your enemies and treat them cruelly and and uh power glory and and everything human and and rotten uh, uh you know sexual debauchery everything the most you can get and and you you die and you go to some uh, afterworld that is just a continuation of this world with all of the hatreds and also it was just a, their idea of the afterworld was was just a, a continuation of earth with all of the sin and 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 intrigues of human beings it was no heaven uh in in our sense you know it was just a uh, you know part two of life uh and yeah. um so you know hearing this uh, <laughs> blessed are the peacemakers i mean the the <laughs> Uh, blessed are they who suffer persecution for justice sake. Uh, these things have, were never said before and never said afterwards. I mean, they're so sublime. Um, and, uh, so all of the philosophers before them, you know, it's so to say that he was in some way a fool or, or, uh, didn't know what he was talking about or whatever you want to, however you want to word it. It's just absurd. I mean, it's you know, yeah. that's all we could say about it. Um, well, on the Sermon of the Mount, my lord, um, it says in the text, uh, it's so simple that the rudest intellect can grasp it. Uh, that uh, really struck struck me because you know it was not only radical in its thinking, if you like, uh, you know, completely opposed to the thinking of the day, but he put it so simply and so sublimely, as you put it. Yes, yes, and that's true of the whole gospel. The the gospel is. All of the Gospels are written in in a sublime yet very simple form, so even the most simple person can understand them. Whereas, if you go to Plato or Aristotle, all of the great minds of the world at uh, that time, ah, uh, you know, you need a degree <laughs> to understand those people. I mean, you, you know, you should you should try Aristotle. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it gives you a headache. Uh, and I'll leave that to you, <laughs> some very great things. Aristotle did say some very great things. Uh, Plato said some great things, but it was mixed in with all sorts of horrible things too. You know, the uh, um, he favored homosexuality, for example, uh, and and other other moral uh, perversions and all. Uh, and um, so, I mean, there was a whole mix of good and bad. Uh, among the philosophers and others, I mean, Epicurus and the Stoics, I mean, they were all mixed up people. They were all the intellectuals, you know, the Stoicism and, and the other movements were all for just intellectuals, an intellectual elite. That's the only people who could read those things and somewhat understand them. And then the common people at the time were practicing all of the pagan religions and sacrificing chickens to gods and uh, had no moral teaching, no dogmas. The religions were merely ritual religions and you sacrificed a chicken in order to get something, you know, and from a god and to please the god and then you would get whatever you needed, supposedly. And, uh, and they were loaded with superstitions about you know, what bird is flying over or this, that, or the other thing. And, and uh, you know, they were just soaked in, in primitive religion, what you'd call primitive darkness. And uh, so that was 
absurd. The upper classes had nothing to do with those religions. They thought they were, you know, it was just a state religion and they observed them, but nobody believed in the Roman gods and, you know, they thought it was all crazy. Uh, and um, so, but our Lord uh, is, is accessible to everyone, uh, yet he, there is a profound wisdom in what he says. Uh, and, and, and so at, at the same time, it has the, the simplicity that is attainable by all, and yet a wisdom that, that is, exceeds anything that any philosopher ever said. <clears throat> so, um, and the second point is that there were no causes of error in our Lord because he was not proud. Pride is, is the main source of error. You jump to conclusions. You think that you know something that you don't. Uh, it's the, the first uh, main source of error. Uh, and, uh, but he was remarkable for his humility. Uh, humility is something that wants to learn. And so therefore it does not jump to conclusions. It does not uh, pretend to know something it doesn't know. Uh, so, and he was perfectly humble. So he could, uh, you know, there's no reason why he would be, de be deceived by anything or, or get ideas into his head that were not true. Um, uh, he submitted to all of the Jewish laws. Uh, he did not make any trouble. Uh, he was not a fanatic. He, he, he never lost his temper. He never, uh, there's no, no record of his having uh, preached like some of these uh, Protestant preachers who are up and down and and, and <laughs> I don't know if you've ever <laughs> seen some, some yes. American Protestant preachers. But, you know, there's a certain fanaticism in them. And, and there's none of that in our Lord. He, he's very calm. Uh, he says these things with, uh, with perfect, uh, perfect tranquility. Um, and, uh, and he avoids the snares of his enemies in order to announce his mission. He gives them these wonderful responses that put them down in a very gentle way, but nonetheless do the job. Uh, there is only one case in which he may have raised his voice a little bit, and that is in the eight woes to the Pharisees, which he pronounced in the temple on Holy Wednesday, on the Wednesday of Holy Week, which was sort of the end of his whole dealings with the Pharisees. Woe to you, whitened sepulchers. And uh, just as he did eight Beatitudes, he has eight woes to the Pharisees. And we can think of him as raising his voice a little bit, uh, uh, always in control of himself, but it's the only time in which he really, well, I shouldn't say that, not the only time. He says some pretty nasty things to them at other times. But uh, he, he's always giving them a response that will draw them to the truth. See, yeah. when he confounds them, he gives them a response that would draw them to the truth if they were interested in the truth. Mm. By the time Wednesday of Holy Week comes around, they have to demonstrated that they are no longer interested in the truth, and he blasts them for that. Truly a blast. I mean, I don't know what they felt like after he got through with them. Um, but that was the, the day, either the day of or the day after we, and we just had that gospel too, where they dared not ask him any more questions. You see, that he asked them a question, why, uh, whose son is David? And, the, and they said, well, as whose son is the Messiah? And they said, David's son. 
And he said, well, if that's true, why does it say in the Psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If the, the Messiah is David's son, why does David call him Lord? See, that was the question to the Pharisees and nobody answered him that. You see, that's a, a citation from Psalm 109, which was always considered a messianic psalm. So he, he knows, and the Pharisees know, that we're talking about the Messiah here. And David is calling his own son, who is the Messiah, my Lord. Why does he do that? And they had no answer for him. Obviously, the answer was clear that his mm. son is the son of God. David's son is the son of God. They could not say that because of their pride. And it says in the gospel, they didn't dare ask him any more questions. <laughs> because they had, asked, he, they had asked him a question and then he came back with that question and then they decided, well, we're not going to ask him any more questions. So yes. he, he, his responses to these, uh, these traps are manifest a, a very, very supernatural wisdom. And it's not some some fool that is dealing with these Pharisees. Not at all. I mean, it just doesn't fit. Um, uh, this re reminds me of a story of St. Joan of Arc. Her English persecutors said to her in court, in front of everybody, are you in the state of grace? Hmm. Which you would never ask anybody. And you wouldn't ask someone that privately. You, ask, you might ask them in confession, but you would never ask somebody openly, are you in the state of grace? Mm. <laughs> you know? And so she said with supernatural wisdom, if I am, I thank God. If I am not, I pray that God would forgive me. <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful answer. <laughs> yes. And even there, her English judges marveled at that answer. No, not enough to spare her the, the stake, though. No, that's right. The, the but, supernatural wisdom is the, is, the, is the theme there, even when uh, you, you get a sense of his just deliberateness, um, even when he is seemingly angry. It's not a irrational or, a, you know, over-the-top anger, even when he, uh, you know, hurls the money changes out of the temple. Um, it's, a, it's a deliberate, you know, calm... If, if there's such a thing, but a calm, uh, you know, anger. Yes, it's the what anger is supposed to be. Mm. Uh, our emotions were meant to be always in control. Something like when you turn the volume up and down on your, uh, whatever, your recording device or whatever, or playing music. We used to have names for all of those things, but we don't use them anymore. You can always tell <laughs> someone's age by what he calls that thing. When I was a, a child, it was a record player, but I won't say that. Uh, the That really dates me. Stereo. Yes, uh, <laughs> stereo. That's when I was a teenager. Uh, we would say stereos because there was no stereo before I was a teenager back in the 1960s. That was something new that came out, that the, the sound would come out on two speakers separately and that you could hear both sides of the orchestra. And that was something very, uh, you know, extraordinary. So, um, and I remember 45 records. I don't know if you, uh, those little uh, records that had a big hole in the middle. 
Do you remember those? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I do remember 45 uh, records when I was a very young uh, child, you know, six, seven. And um, and also, uh, I think they were, most of them were 33, the bigger ones. Yes, well, I remember I 78. So I remember 78 still. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm we used ancient. to have lots of fun changing the time on the, 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 the speed on the record player, just to <laughs> yes. listen to them sped up. <laughs> yeah, so, so, uh, so anyway, getting back to the point, anger is something that should be able to be always under our control. And, yes. and that's the purpose of it. And we should use anger once in a while, like to correct our children, but one, one that is always under control. Because you need to emphasize a point uh, and you need to inspire a certain amount of fear so that they don't do it again. So you have to give them a bit of an angry face and you have to raise your voice slightly and say, don't do this again. See, so that, that's the purpose of anger. Uh, and our Lord used it in that way. Uh, but there's never a case where he quote unquote lost it. Uh, you know, and, and uh, no, this, he's always in control of himself. Yes, it says in the text that Christ had no passionate impulses that led men to make false judgments. No. Which is the, uh, no, the point, no. yeah. No, it's, uh, uh, and, and yes, the author is very good. He says, uh, uh, humility without objection, gravity without severity, chastity without hatred for women, indignation without anger, Mercy without weakness, courage without recklessness. Yes, uh, always in control, always in the perfection of moral behavior. So it, it's uh, another absurdity to try to make him into a fool. There's a nice quote from Chesterton um, in the footnote on page 93 where uh, refuting the notion that the ideas of our Lord were suitable for his time but not for ours. Uh, quote, he says, he never used a phrase that made his philosophy depend upon the very existence of the social order in which he lived. He spoke as one conscious that everything was ephemeral, including things that Aristotle thought eternal. The truth is that when critics have spoken of the local limitations of the Galilean, it has always been a case of the local limitations of the critics. <laughs> I, I really like that. Yeah, he always turns it that way, Chesterton. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he always <laughs> turns it around. It's very good. So that sort of concludes uh, that, you know, our Lord was the wisest of men and there were no causes of error in, in him, uh, so there's no possible way that he could have been uh, deceived. So uh, we'll just pause here for a moment to remind our listeners um, that you're listening to Apologetics Show number seven on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Phil Stone, and I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. And today we've been continuing the discussion of Jesus of Nazareth in that he could not have deceived men with regards to his claims, nor could he have been deceived with regards to his mission. So now, my Lord, we'll move on to summarise the fundamental doctrines of, of Jesus to finish off the show in um, Lesson 22 of the text. And the text says that uh, the doctrines of Jesus may be divided into three sections. Uh, could you please take it away from here, my Lord? Uh, yes, first, what men must believe, then what men must do, and how men are to pray. So this is the doctrine, morals, and and liturgy, uh, the uh, we might say, or, or anything to do with prayer, piety, per personal prayer, even liturgical prayer, 
anything to do with the with directing our minds and hearts to God. So uh, the uh, th- that is the the sum total of religion is is to uh, doctrine about God, doctrine about how to achieve God, how to come to Him. That's the moral life, and then how to pray. See, it's not a religion is not merely a moral code. There has to be a a life of communicating with God, and that you do by prayer. So, uh, all of those things are are to be found in our Lord's teaching. So, uh, what men must believe, he 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 says, there is only one God. He's Creator, Lord, and Ruler. He's a Spirit. He's all perfect, holy, good, free, all powerful all-knowing, entirely independent, a kind and provident father even to sinners. And see, that is something that the Jews never heard in the Old Testament or heard only imperfectly. The the, uh, kindness of the father towards sinners. Uh, uh, And he taught that he is the Messiah and that uh, that belief in his divinity is the foundation of the Christian religion. He taught that baptism is necessary. He died and, uh, and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and will come as judge uh, to, to uh, judge all mankind at the end of the world. Uh, and uh, that we must listen to his church uh, as the infallible teacher of all that we must believe. So that is, you know, a summary in, in, in less than a minute, perhaps, of, of what Christ taught. That's essentially the, the creed of the Catholic Church. Uh, so then what men must do? Uh, so what is their moral life? So he very clearly rejected the traditional formalism of the Pharisees, that is a purely external observance of minute ceremonies and minute observances, uh, you know the the uh, washing of hands and purely external, uh, with no internal morality, uh, and uh, he he railed against that uh, again and again uh, with regard to the Pharisees, and. Um, uh, the they raised the Sabbath. Uh, uh, to merely uh, performance of external work. So remember I said yeah, the pagans were observing the same thing, that religion had nothing to do with dogma or morality. It was just external observances that made you pleasing to the God, or in this case, the Pharisees were worshiping the true God. But uh, the externalism is something that he abhorred. Uh, and he taught the beauty of internal religion and he purified the worship in the temple by driving out the uh, people who should not have been there twice. And uh, he abrogated the laws of divorce, which was uh, something horrifying to the Pharisees and, and to those listening to him, uh, saying that, well, if that's the way it is, it's better never to get married if you cannot divorce. I mean, they were so attached to that toleration in the Old Testament of divorce that God permitted by toleration, that the, the, to, to speak of, of staying with the same woman your whole life was just so, just unbearable. The whole thought was unbearable <laughs> to them that, that you, you could not get out of a marriage, but yet he maintained that. Uh, 
and uh, uh, and he uh, and that's a case too where he did not back down. Uh, the uh, when Nicodemus said to him, when our Lord said, "You have to be born again." Nicodemus said, does that mean we have to go back into our mother's wombs and be born again? And our Lord corrected him and said, Nicodemus, you're, you're an educated man. I'm paraphrasing. You're a doctor in Israel. You should know better than, than to say something like that. You know what I mean. And so he corrected him. Now, let's go to John 6, where he says, I am, my flesh is, is meat indeed. My blood is drink indeed. And even his disciples said, how can you give us your flesh to eat and, and your blood to drink? He did not correct them. He did not correct them. But he, he insisted all the more. Amen, amen, I say to you. See, so, uh, so this is a, a case too where they say to him, oh, you've got to be kidding. This can't be. <laughs> you know, you're, you're putting us on. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and he says, no, this is it. You, you have to remain faithful to your wife for your whole life, and, and the old mosaic toleration is finished. See, so, and I say this because Bergoglio has, has uh, again emphasized that we can give Holy Communion to the divorced and remarried. He, he just recently praised the uh, a theological article by an Argentinian priest who said that's the only way in which you can take the recent encyclical on that, the uh, Amoris Laetitia, or as we jokingly call it, Horroris Laetitia. <laughs> uh, 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 Amoris is, means love, Horroris means horror. horror. And so it's the joy of horror. And, uh, the, uh, and he praised that man. Yes, you know, the, he, he did not come out and say, oh, no, he got it all wrong. He didn't mean that. He praised what the theologian said. So we know that's Bergoglio's mind. And, and so we see that that is absolutely contrary to our Lord Jesus Christ, as Bergoglio has proven himself to be in so many cases. Uh, so, um, and he also purified the law of revenge, he said, uh, you've heard in the, in the old law that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, you know, turn your cheek and, and do, don't do evil to those who do evil to you, but do good to them. That was a, a big turnover. That, I mean, and that's one of the hardest things to observe. All of our natural instincts are to do evil to those who do evil to us. And, and the you have to overcome that natural instinct by the grace of God to even to refrain from doing evil. But you have, he wants you to go yet further and he wants you to do good to those who e do evil to you. I mean, that's a very, very high level of morality. It totally transforms the human being. See, and, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, uh, it's a beautiful doctrine. Uh, and so that means we have to love our neighbor for God's sake. And see, so as God would do good to them, even though we, they do evil to him, so also we must do good uh, to those who do evil to us. So, um, and 
And he also nullified the old law, the, all of the, the external observances of the old law. See, so, because he had the authority to do so, that's a sign of his divinity. So, uh, in regard to duties to God, uh, God is to be loved above all things. He is to be feared, adored in spirit and truth. That's what he said to the Samaritan woman. Uh, and to be sought as the one and only object of man's happiness. Beatific vision. And man must assent to God's testimony. He must believe what God has taught. And he must unite himself to God by prayer and deed in the spirit of a child dealing with its father. So he taught us to pray our father. And uh, for the sake of God, man must lose his life. It's his own life and withdraw from human glory and attachment and keep from an overweening love of earthly things. So we have to give up our lives rather than uh, defect from the truth. We have to be detached from earthly things uh, and uh, in order to find God and to be close to God. Uh, this is something that was never heard of in the ancient world. We're sort of used to it in our time because the gospel has been preached so, so in so many places. But and this was just shocking doctrine to the ancients. <laughs> it's yeah. just, I mean, 80% of the Roman world was slave. If, if you got conquered by a people, everyone turned into a slave. Mm. You were slaves. If, if there was a battle and, and your people lost, you turned into slaves. 80% of the population of the empire was slave. So you see this elite, this rich elite, and then the rest of humanity like cattle. I mean, they treated those slaves badly. Not so much that they beat them or anything, but they had no status. They, they were just like cattle. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, just, just things to you know, that you would dispose of if necessary. You know, just a slave, you know. and and so that that is something that uh, Christianity, of course, did away with. Uh, and so he's giving a whole new doctrine and very sublime doctrine to a pagan world. Um, so, uh, and he says uh, that uh, men must be merciful; they must be humble. The, the ancient world never heard of humility. Just never heard of it. It was a, it was a bad word. You know, but humble now is a virtue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they have to give good example. Uh, they, uh, uh, they, our Lord raised matrimony to its primitive dignity. Uh, men have to be faithful to their duties of state. And they have to pay their taxes. He himself paid a tax. Uh, that's not uh, something that people usually read in the gospel, but there is an, an event in the gospel where he pays a tax. Is that where he got the and, coin from uh, the fish? That's correct. Right. Yeah. Most people are not familiar with that. Uh, one of these years, I'm going to preach on the unfamiliar passages of the gospel because I have been preaching for 41 years on the gospels that you find in the Sunday passages. Yeah. And after 41 years, there's only so much you can say about those Sunday passages. So I've decided that I'm going to, one of these times, break out and, and address passages that you never hear. 
And that's especially true in Lent, because during the week, there's a special gospel every day. Most people never hear them. Mm. And so, you know, it, it, it's uh, you know, these, these unknown aspects of the life of Christ. That'd be very interesting. My Lord, uh, encourage you to do that. It's, uh, it's, it's always good to get something from a different angle. Yes, yes. Well, as I said, after 41 years, you have to start looking for different angles. <laughs> Especially when all of your work goes up on the internet, so then it's finished. Yes. It, uh, you, can't, you can't say it again. The whole world has heard it. We, we just realized the other day that since 2014, when we started putting things up on our website, we've had over 90,000 downloads. Wow. Uh, that's sermons and conferences, 90, over 90,000 downloads. So the word is getting out, I'll say that. Uh, and uh, uh, so, but... It says a lot about people's um, uh, understanding of how the world really is and uh, their search for, for the truth. There are some people searching for the truth, yes. Uh, yes. We just got a, a, an email today from a man living in the Canary Islands with wow. eight children, yes. And he said, I've been reading, he, he's a, an English teacher. He speaks Spanish, of course, but he's an English teacher. And so he's been reading all of our stuff in English and been listening to our stuff in English. And uh, he said, uh, you know, I'm very close to embracing what you say. And, but he says, I live in the Canary Islands. There's no mass here. I have eight children. And my wife is hostile to to tradition. Mm. Ah, so he has a, a difficult problem. Ironically, the Canary lie, uh, Islands lie due east of Brooksville, Florida. Wow, <laughs> they are on practically the same latitude as Brooksville, Florida. So, uh, by coincidence, but um, yeah, I felt very sorry for him. There's nothing we can do in the Canary Islands, you know? mm. so, and. and Encourage him to immigrate. Yeah, but even to Spain, though. Well, the U.S. is not exactly, doesn't welcome people with open arms, let's put it that way. Um, it's very hard to do that. And to be an English teacher to Spanish speakers is something that probably would not get you into this country. Mm. If you were teaching, you know, uh, Laotian or Vietnamese or something like that, uh, it, it might, you know, if you had some some niche like that, uh, but not not English to Spanish speakers. Those are a dime a dozen in this country. And the mm. point is that you can't get in if you're taking the job away from a, from a, an American. So yeah. they don't let you in. And, you know, then it's very costly. Moving eight children to the United States would be a very, very costly thing. And especially if, you're, if your wife is not with you on that. Yeah, so my heart goes out to him and... Uh, but you know, people are listening to us, uh, and uh, uh, which was heartening to hear. Uh, it's just that we, <laughs> it used to be I would let five years go by and I would give the same sermon again or give it someplace else. Yeah, see, I could. There was one time I gave a sermon, I think it was 14 times uh, in a matter of about a month because I was going around to different missions, and uh, it was a record for me. <laughs> and, <laughs> Because we used to do many masses on Sunday. We don't do that so much anymore. And so I would end up in all of these places I had never been. I, I could give the sermon again. Now it's finished. It's mm. finished. It goes up on, on the, on the uh, internet and, and everybody listens to it. They quote it. You said this, you know, in your sermon three weeks ago. And 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm glad they're listening, but it does make us <laughs> dig a little deeper to to find matter to speak about. But that's good. Yes, it's. Uh, thank God for the internet in that uh, in that regard. Um, but I think sometimes it's not a problem hearing a sermon a number of times just to 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 drive home the uh, the point. Because um, I'm not sure about uh, others, but I know that sometimes I. I'll um I'll need to listen to it two or three times just to to get more out of it. So um I haven't got a yes. problem with uh, having having that many uh, sermons. Also, on a live delivery is more efficacious than a recording. That's true. Too. Yes, indeed. Uh, that was a good uh, little rabbit hole to go down. But yes, yes, I hope it wasn't boring to our listeners. <laughs> um, uh, so um. And our Lord uh, talks about man's duties toward himself. He must love himself. Uh, and uh, he has to abstain from all foulness, dirtiness, and you know, impurity. Uh, he has to bear up with persecution. Uh, he must have a spirit of poverty. He must love peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, he must trust God, uh, God's providence. Uh, he can't be hypocritical like the Pharisees are. He can't engage in rash judgments. And he must unite himself with God. And you know, this, this is a, a beautiful morality. And then he gives counsels, that is, things that are not laws, but which go above and beyond the law uh, for those who can bear them, such as perfect chastity, which is religious life, voluntary poverty, religious life, uh, obedience, also religious life, and the tolerance of injuries, see, the, the uh, doing uh, good to those who, who um, do evil to us and, and being at least civil to your enemies and, and not wishing harm to them. Well, that's actually part of the law. Uh, but uh, a counsel is to actually turn the cheek. That's a counsel, you know, and, and uh, permitting them even to do another injury to you. It's a counsel. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, he puts sanctions upon those who will not obey his teaching, showing his divinity. So he's not some sort of Buddha that just suggests things. This is a moral law that he is preaching. And, and if you don't obey it, you go to hell. And, uh, the motives of obeying this law are the love of God, the father and of our blessed Lord himself and of your own soul the love of peace, the love of people around you, and the hope of reward, and the fear of a revenging God. So these are all things contained in his gospel. And then he taught us how to pray, the Our Father. Uh, and uh, uh, there is his, his priestly prayer in the 17th chapter of St. John. At the Last Supper, uh, he prays to his Father at the Last Supper. Uh, after everything is done, but they, they, they after the Last Supper, he uh, before he went over to the Garden of Gethsemane, there, there's a lot of things that he said to the apostles, which are contained only in St. John. Mm. Uh, and um, <clears throat> the doctrines of Christ attract the attention of infidels and enemies. The infidels are, are those, for example, uh, pagans who showed up on uh, Palm Sunday. There's a case where some pagans wanted to see him. Uh, on Palm Sunday, and Philip approaches him with that. Uh, and uh, and uh, the, the Magi also, and uh, the, uh, the 
Longinus, who uh, was uh, uh, at crucifixion and said, truly this man is the son of God. And that shows that he must have been following him and he would not have said that just because there was an earthquake. He must have had a certain attachment to Christ and a certain interest in Christ in order for him to say that. Mm. Uh, We see Cornelius the pagan going to St. Peter because he is interested in what Christ said. We see the the eunuch of Candace being um, uh, converted in the Acts of the Apostles by the deacon uh, Philip. Uh, and not that's not the apostle, but the deacon Philip. Hmm. Uh, so, um, uh, so he he is drawing other people already by the end of the first century A.D. Uh, Trajan puts to death his own cousin, uh, Flavius Clemens in Latin, his own cousin, and who is uh, uh, of consular rank, which is you know part of the Roman government puts him to death uh, because he uh, was a Christian. So that shows that, uh, that the doctrine penetrated not only the lower classes, but the upper classes and the governing classes. This was about 100 AD. And that they understood that you had to die in order to protect the faith. That's very significant. I mean, as somebody that had everything to live for, being a part of the Roman government, being the cousin of the emperor, having it made in Rome, basically, probably very rich, he died out of, out of devotion to the faith. So uh, those are, are all... Um, uh, and then the doctrine of the Eucharist uh, is uh, such a sublime thing that, it, as somebody said... If human beings had made up the doctrine of the real presence, no one would have believed it. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it just goes beyond the beyond in the imagination of men that, that God could place himself not only in the form of a baby in Bethlehem, but also under the, the species of, of bread and wine in the Holy Eucharist. And that's the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ and the Holy Eucharist. I mean, no human being could possibly have made that up. And if he had, no one would have believed it. Mm, mm. That's, uh, that's it's a theme of, uh, of this science of apologetics in that to think that someone has made this up and that it's actually gained the traction uh, to preach the gospel through the whole world, especially you know the way Rome was at the time when it was the church was in its infancy, um, you just can't possibly fathom it without uh, supernatural influence, and and that in itself is a is an apologetic argument. Oh, very much so. The the propagation of the faith in the early centuries, because they were up against it completely. Yeah. There was not a single thing in their favor. Jews saying to Romans, "You must worship a crucified Jew." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. It, The Jews were considered by the Romans to be this rebellious, cocky... Lowlife. Yes, yes. The Romans had no use for the Jews, especially in that first century AD. That's why they went and destroyed their their city. Uh, So just think of St. Peter arriving in first century AD Rome as things are brewing in, in Jerusalem against the Romans 
And he goes and says, you have to worship not only a Jew, he himself a Jew, you have to not only worship a Jew, but a crucified Jew. Hmm. And just and and you have to put aside all of your debauchery and your gods. There's only one God. All of your state religion is false, and and you have to die if somebody wants you to worship these false gods. Now, the only way that that's going to get any traction anywhere is by supernatural help from God. Yes, indeed. I mean, if that were a false religion, it would have shut down on day one. <laughs> I mean, just think of it. Just think of it. It would be like going to Arabia, just you know, something like that, and saying your Allah is all false as could be. And you're the religion that you've been, you know, observing for all these centuries is all false. And, and here I am, an American, and, you know, or, you know, if you went into Iran, say, and said, you know, I'm an American citizen, and I'm telling you that you have to worship an American who was put in the electric chair. It's something like that. They, they you know, they would just be, what are you saying to us? I mean, what, what are you, crazy? See, they, you know, we're going to give up this, this religion that is so dear to us and which is so, you know, a part of our culture. And we're going to do what you say, you American, that, that you know, you're the, our enemy. Uh, and, you know, it, it's something like that. Yeah. It, it, it was just such a shock uh, that uh, now what was in their favor, though, was that the Jewish scriptures were studied by some of the pagans who were of goodwill and who who wanted more than the the stupid gods of of the state you know that is true they always had a respect for the the jewish scriptures so judaism was from that point of view was not as as reviled as we might think but politically they were reviled uh and uh, uh claudius uh, in the uh, emperor claudius in the year 51 or 53 i can't remember kicked the jews out of rome and uh, you know, they were they were perceived as so problematic to the Roman state. So it was not a not an easy task. And uh, uh, and uh, the Jewish religion uh, was above all of the religion of, uh, of the pagan nations, but it had succumbed to the. Uh, 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 the religion taught by our Lord. And he accepted what was good in it, but at the same time purified it of falsity because the Pharisees had added things to it. That was why he always criticized them. They were not merely observing the law, but they had added all of those things so as to make the law practically impossible to observe. And they, were ad they added these man-made burdens upon the people. And so he got rid of all of that and took from the Jewish religion everything that was uh, worthy to come over into the New Testament. Uh, and uh, so, that, so because a lot of things in the Old Testament were done for a purpose, and that is to teach the Jews obedience, to teach a people obedience to the law of God. And uh, that was very difficult in the Old Testament. And so a lot of the... 
let's say the things that God did is respect to the Jews in the Old Testament, he rescinded in the New Testament because it was supposed to be a testament of grace and love of God, knowledge of God and uh, a spirit of liberty in the sense that we elect to love God because he loves us. See, that was the, it was not a, a dispensation of fear, you know, that where if you disobey, you will be struck. See, and, and, and uh, it was a dispensation of love uh, and uh, a call to love God and to know God as your father. That was a whole different approach. Uh, from from what the Jews knew in the past, so um, so so he taught that, and uh, and finally the author says that as a teacher, uh, he no one has ever come close to him. There, there's never been a philosopher or a religious leader that has come close to Christ as a teacher from the point of view of his. Uh, profound doctrines, the simplicity of his ex expression, his clearness, uh, his dignity. Uh, he avoids all philosophizing. He doesn't give you syllogisms like Plato and Aristotle or anything like that. Uh, everything is so clear <coughs> and simple. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, clear and simple and, and ready to be understood by even the, the most unintelligent person um, and uh, his just reading the gospel is something that is very engaging uh, it, it it draws you to into into a belief in Christ so um, and uh, and he was just the son of a carpenter so there it's not like he went to the school of philosophy in Athens and had some great teacher teach him all of these things. He was the son of a carpenter. And so these things came from his divine intellect. That's the conclusion. And, and therefore, he manifests his divinity by the sublimity of his doctrines. Indeed. I, I liked, um, once again, I'm a bit of a fan of Chesterton. And um, on the footnote on page uh, 98, uh, he says, um, the diction used about Christ has been, and perhaps wisely, sweet and submissive. But the diction used by Christ is uh, is curiously gigantesque. It is full of camels leaping through needles and mountains hurled into the sea. It just really encapsulated it, it well for me. Well, that uh, wraps up uh, this miniseries that, in a sense, introduces our Lord and Saviour, uh, Prophet, Messiah, and True God, um, but it doesn't end there. In the next show, we will explore more about the proofs of our Lord's mission through his miracles and prophecies, and we'll also answer objections against his miracles. I think, my Lord, that we're really in the thick of apologetics proper here. Uh, is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our episode? No, just again, and I, I think I said it the last time, uh, read the uh, table of contents to follow the logic of what we're doing. He, he's going in a very, very classical presentation of the apologetic method mm. of the Catholic Church. And and the the method and the step-by-step -step method is very important to follow, that's all. Yes, very good. So how's things in uh, sunny Florida? Uh, your seminary year has commenced now, is it? Uh, yes, yes. We have 12 seminarians uh, and they're working hard. They uh, uh, have uh, their courses going and uh, we're pleased with all of them. Uh, and 
Uh, let's see, yes, it's plenty sunny. We had a tropical storm a few weeks ago, but we survived it. It was nothing too terrible except three tornado warnings and apocalyptic thunderstorms, but besides <laughs> that, it was all right. The, we never got a tornado. There were warnings. In this country, a warning means a funnel cloud has been sighted. Right. And they come over your phone, your cell phone. These, these, And so we got three of them in the course of the day, but nobody saw anything and there was no reported anything. But anyway, it's just sort of a start to get that on your phone. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, uh, but uh, yes, it, it, it was some high wind and as I said, very severe thunderstorms, one after the other. For I was up the whole night because you couldn't sleep with the thunderstorms. Right. Uh, but uh, we survived it very nicely. They Nothing. Should, there was. There were not even trees down or anything. They should get a uh, a little fewer now. You know, um, less and less as you come into fall. Uh, into the fall season, do you, do you, get, you wouldn't get them during winter, would you? No, they're finished by now. Yeah, their real season is August fifteenth to September fifteenth. Right. Anything after that is so weak that it's not worth bothering with. Right. Uh, it's just uh, it doesn't get any speed or or you know it really is not anything to think about. So uh, no, it was a very light year for for hurricanes. Every spring they scare us by saying it's going to be terrible, it's going to be horrible storms, and and nothing happens. <laughs> you know? uh, so it's like uh, the boy who cried wolf. Oh yes, so you just sort of take it, you know, and and uh, so it's pretty much finished by now. I mean, it would be very unusual that you would get a major storm at this point. Very, very unusual. Yep. So uh, yeah, so we're all busy. Uh, uh, Father Disposito is doing a, a two interesting courses. One is on the magisterium of the church, which is usually part of the general course on the church, which I am teaching. But he's making a special course out of it because it's very hotly contested. The Society of St. Pius X uh, has this notion of the magisterium that is erroneous. And so we want the seminarians to see the documents of the church concerning the magisterium so that they understand what the truth is concerning it. And, and then also he's doing a course in the New Theology and in the Errors of Vatican II. So uh, we also want the the seminarians to understand those things that the uh, you know what the new theology is. Uh, Ratzinger he was a uh, part of that in the nineteen forties and fifties. Rahner all of the the big people from that age before the council uh, going over their doctrines and showing how they influenced the council. So uh, because they they need to to know that stuff too. Uh, it's and a, they, a branch of apologetics. Yes, it is. It's a it's a continuation, really, of apologetics. How to defend the faith against Modernism. Vatican II and the new theology. Yes, yes, yeah, very, very much so. So those are some interesting courses. I would actually like to take his one on the new theology myself. Uh, I only have sort of fuzzy notions about it. Uh, you know, unclear, and uh, you know, I know something about it, of course, but yes. I'd like to actually take the course myself. So who knows, maybe I'll show up for it. Very good. <laughs> well, once again, my Lord, thank you for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon as we continue this series. Uh, may God bless you. All right. Thank you. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email questions at truerestoration.org. 
We want to remind you that Apologetics is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any, any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I'm Phil Stone. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.